Welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make our community tick. So many of those headlines these days have had to do with challenges and opportunities in public education in New Haven. And behind those headlines, a person making such a difference and bringing so much fresh perspective and energy to these challenges is Leslie Blateau, president of New Haven Federation Teachers. That's the what's called? Yes, that's what we're called. Still, yeah, because mm-hmm. wasn't there a time when the name changed or no? No, New Haven Federation of Teachers, Local 933. All right, all the way back to when like there was the strike in the 70s and people got arrested and stuff. I believe so, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, Leslie Blateau, welcome back to Dateline New Haven. I love when you come in and you, you made a special effort today. Thank you for, for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Paul. And happy snow day. Yes, happy snow day to teachers, students, school staff. I know that we're enjoying it. And what, I hope what, we're enjoying it. What does it mean it. for you? Like, what time did you find out? One teacher told me this morning he didn't find out till midnight last night. Well, I found out um, because, it, it, well, it's interesting that you asked because this time around, how we found out was different than usual. Usually, we get a robocall from New Haven Public Schools, uh, but this time around, it came from 946-7669, which is a city call, and it was the mayor himself who announced it. And it was uh, just a roundup, or was it just school announcement? So, that was a roundup, but we heard school was closed and uh, hung up. I assumed it was parking bans and whatnot. So, that one was already at, that was only at like 6 or 7 p.m., That was right? about 6 o'clock, but not all of our teachers got it, because they're not necessarily New Haven residents. Something right. bridge, Everbridge. But, but then Keisha Red Hannon's assistant superintendent, then she did another call and an email out to staff, um, and then it trickles out from there. What time was that? That was shortly after, maybe about an hour or two after the mayor's call. I was wondering why this guy didn't find out till midnight. Yeah, and I already actually received an email from one of my building stewards saying, uh, teachers want to know how they can get signed signed back up on that list. And I think it's a matter of reaching out to the help desk, but I have to double check. So I will double check. Forever Bridge, you mean? Uh, No, no, this is for NHPS. Uh, there's a lot of different lists for NHPS of, of, you know, parents get robocalls, teachers get robocalls, and we just have to make sure that people have their updated info in there so they can be on that first-to-know list when there is a cancellation or a delay. Yeah, so interesting, Leslie, how communication changed since you and I were coming up. I yep. mean, people listen to the radio. Everyone here We had a to call number from my school. And you had to wait. Um, okay, so you're a tiny bit younger than I am, maybe. I mean, because even here in the 70s and 80s and 90s, people were waiting on ELI. I remember I was working oh, on no, ELI. Oh, no, no. When I say a call number, not a phone call number, like oh. our school had a code number. So oh. we had to listen for our code right, on I, the radio. I, I, they could watch TV where there was the crawl, but they did the whole state. Yep. And I remember that was the big thing. I remember one principal, as you said, when he went, um, was at a bar with, he heard a familiar voice, and it was the guy from ELI who used to read. And he gave him a free beer and said, thank you so much. He thought he was the one <laughs> who let them know he had the day off. It's pretty funny. Oh, no. It was a, a rite of passage, for sure, of um, listening for that call um, on the radio. But now there's such efficient ways to communicate, target people, like Everbridge, those recordings with the city. You have the phone tree. It seemed to be that it should be quicker, no? I mean, it's, it seemed not that yeah, hard. Now I think it's a matter, of data, a matter of data management, too, of just making sure that the that our updated phone numbers and email addresses are in the systems that, that NHPS is using so that we can get that information. I mean, what, once what, a few teachers get it, though, uh, you can rest assured that most teachers will hear. Uh, we're pretty good at spreading the word on these kinds of things. And then you're a teacher and a parent. Yes. You're a public school student, correct? Yep. So how do you feel about snow days as both? Because sometimes when I was, remember my kids were like, I used to sometimes worry, it'd be fun to be with them, it's that special. But you know, if you had work obligations, it was kind of stressful getting them someplace to go. It can be stressful. I mean, when I was a full-time classroom teacher, I would revel in the snow day with my daughter um, mm-hmm. because the schoolwork could wait. 
and we could pick up the piles of grading uh, at seven o'clock, you know, after dinner and just enjoy the day. Now in my role as president of the teachers union, I I work a lot more and at at more, uh, you know, just more consistent hours. Just um, so I did have to find childcare for her. Um, to come here because we had this planned already. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then the, you know, the, the cartoons, childcare is helpful in the morning uh, as I was pushing out emails to organize folks for a public hearing tomorrow up at Hartford. And tell me about that public hearing tomorrow. So tomorrow, the education committee is having a public hearing, and there's a you know a laundry list of bills, ten or eleven bills. We're focusing on three um, tomorrow. One is um, going to address class size and eventually uh, require boards of ed to lower class size over the course of the next few years, which would be fabulous. Um, another is CEA is taking the lead on this, but it's That's something... That's the Connecticut Education Association, not your union, your yep. American Federation of Teachers. Yeah, yeah. We're, uh, both unions are statewide and part of national federations. Um, but CEA has taken the lead on this one, which is um, in pushing the state to reflect more on the impact of high-stakes testing. Um, and you know that you know, we've had conversations about that, and I was looking at CEA's policy brief on this, and they included um, a, a snapshot of Metro and Metro's work back in the day um, on performance-based assessment. Because remember, you and other teachers were finding other ways to, to have kids do work that was more meaningful and assess how well they're doing that work. And actually, you were ahead of your time because, I mean, law schools now and, and colleges are start, stopping using some of that standardized test. What do they want to do? Is this, I take it this bill would not be ordering an end to the testing. Right? No, this would be, uh, I think, more of a, the phase of a task force um, beginning mm-hmm. to look at the impact of the time spent preparing for high stakes tests, the um, money spent on high stakes tests, and beginning to think about other ways we can do this. I think CEA's ideal bill would have included a pilot where some schools were given permission to do more performance-based assessment. I don't think that's in the current bill, um, but I know there's always wrangling um, as we get things out of committee and, and to the General Assembly. Is Massachusetts has done it, so we do have a model up there. Of What have they of, done? Uh, they, I believe, have a pilot um, where some schools in Massachusetts are kind of quote unquote allowed to do this performance based assessment model um, rather than just kind of living and dying by the high stakes test results that the state requires. And is um, that younger grades or older? Because Metro is high school. Yes. Like, do parents freak out? So the freak outs you get from the conservatives, one is that if parents say how, uh, schools won't accept them, colleges, because you don't have the tests they need, although that's changing. And the second freak out is that we have to be competitive and kids have to learn. They have to be measured by how well they're doing. We have to have some kind of standards that are based on some kind of numbers. Uh, I agree completely. But the data and some of the research, so so Metro modeled our work after the Performance Consortium in New York. And there's a consortium of schools in New York City, high schools, um, that serve the same population as, as New York City public schools. Um, but they have waivers from the regents exams. So they are able to um, use performance-based assessment to measure student growth. And CUNY is researching students who come out of the performance consortium schools, and they are doing as good, if not better, at CUNY. Um, So they are absolutely ready for college. Some might argue they are more ready for college because they're actually doing the critical thinking, long-term project research work, presenting their work in front of authentic audiences. Those are the things that we want students to be able to do. I love seeing the projects. City University of New York is CUNY. Because you don't know. I mean, you and I have a bias, which is that sort of this kind of rigid teach to a test pressure is not the best way to learn people how to be thinking individuals who learn how to learn in part. Exactly. And have skills that could take their life in a world that changes so fast so that the job you start with might not even be an industry that you're always in. And it's not just about your job. It's about 
what kind of parent you are, how you deal with other human beings and Absolutely. How you're going to engage with society to go up in the lobby and and testify for a bill potentially. And also I mean, how you're not going to get ripped off by some predatory lender. Yes. I, I would love to teach that course. Yes. What's right. needed. It is that needed. That is so sick. I mean, now they got your cars, get stopped in the middle of the road when they give you a loan you'll never afford. On a, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty sick. Anyway, but that's that's a different subject. We're talking Leslie Blateau, president of New Haven, federate teachers. Got a crew. You got a crew going up tomorrow to Hartford? You could do it. Uh, We're going to do it by Zoom. Or Zoom. Um, because you never know when you're going to get called, and there's still plenty of work on the local level that needs to get done, uh, supporting our members and making sure that, that needs are met. It's, uh, I find it easier to just know when your number is going to get called. And how do you feel testifying? Because you're experienced testifying. What do you feel, and including in New Haven hearings, do you like in-person better or remote? I like both. I like to be in the room and see the legislators. There's power to that. There's always the opportunity to have those conversations with people during the downtime, which is a beautiful thing. That's and by people, not just the legislators who count. People in the audience. Yeah, that's what uh, I think. Fellow I, citizens, I like right? Fellow residents. Thing. But what do you like on the upside? The convenience. You can stay the room, home and the convenience is key. Uh, when we're trying to do, you know, 20 things in a day and then there's three surprises, it does help to be sitting in the office, have all the tools there and not be um, sort of isolated in a hearing room um, up in Hartford. And, uh, so, you know, there's pluses that, and minuses. How does that relate to teaching? What did we learn about remote oh, teaching? I mean, that, that being in the room, being able to observe, being able to have those unplanned conversations, being able to read the cues, all of those things are so necessary uh, when we're trying to meet the needs of, of our students. And that was, those things were not on the table when we were remote. And we weren't able yeah. to observe in, in the way that teachers must be able to observe. Now, again, you and I have biases. Yep. I mean, that is my deep, deep bias. I think that so much of education and life and community is being in person together. Agreed. How's Agreed. that train left? Are we going to become partially um, tech creatures? I, I don't mean that as a joke. Like, it is silly, but you know, that, that so much of our interaction with each other and with other institutions is becoming online. It's being driven by AI algorithms in terms of recommendations, portals that are, is our time over and is it lost? And are we just not going to be human the same way? Is it going to be something new? What it means to be human? what a community is. I do worry about it, Paul. I'm with you. I'm with you. And it, and it feels, uh, you know, particularly chicken little or, or cynical to, to describe it in the way that you are. But I also agree with you. And I worry a great deal about what we're modeling for our children. I mean, my daughter sees me on my phone and my computer more than, than certainly is healthy for her and for me. Um, but the, the work continues. Um, so I think we have to make sure that we're prioritizing any and every opportunity we can have to be in person and then knowing that that tech is going to be there it's going to be a tool it's going to make things potentially you know more efficient uh, perhaps um but we have to center the the, the person-to-person -person communication be, be community i mean i used to ask that question when i taught ninth grade world history of what does it mean to be human um and and that was pre you know full internet takeover that was 2007 2008 so that was just just when our students were beginning to to fully immerse themselves on uh, into an online life. Imagine people ask that of GPT chatbot. So the question is whether the answer would come geared to what the chatbot is programmed to think you want to hear, right? Or right. whether there's some other agenda by the program. <laughs> That's got far field. What about board of ed meetings? Should they be in person? That's they should be absolutely be in person. Now, why is that? Um, because I, I think to to what we're speaking about now that. Those opportunities for the community to come together every two weeks, people who care about education, who want to be in community, um, we need that time. And that is dedicated time, not only to interact with our elected and appointed leaders, but it's also time 
to build community, build coalition with our fellow city residents, fellow educators, parents, students, um, and just get a sense of who's there? What are you working on? Hey, can you go to Hartford tomorrow? Last night, I couldn't do any organizing for public hearings in Hartford at the Board of Ed meeting, save for my public comment, which was, hey, this coalition is doing good work. Let's keep it up. But if we were in person... I would argue there would be 15, 20 people there, maybe more. We would begin to say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Let's connect. Let's meet next week. What are you doing? Can you join us in Hartford? And it's just, again, those organic conversations. what about accountability? Accountability for our our elected and appointed? Uh, I mean, that goes without saying. They would argue, I think, and it's what they're currently arguing, is that they are accountable. They are um, online having their meetings, you know, doing the order of business that is on their agenda. And that's true. They are. Um, But I think, to your point about what does it mean to be in community with people, we need more from a board of education than just working through an agenda. We need to be able to build those relationships. And I recognize that some people have some health concerns, and I, of course, honor those. But when has that ever been a factor, whether an event takes place? Like, a, does the uh, teacher say, well, I have health concerns? Like, well, then you don't come into school, but someone's got to be in the classroom. Yeah, and, I mean, and teachers with health reason- concerns still come to work every day. They mask up, and they continue, the and they push on. The first reason they were given was, well, this is better because more people are attending. But that made no sense because you could have a hybrid meeting. You could yes. have a meeting online. And we could argue about what attending means. You and I might think something differently from them. We do think something different than what it means to attend a meeting. But if you're saying we like that people can watch the meeting like a TV show, you can still have the TV show. Oh, we should still stream. But it used to be in person. Of course. So then it became clear, they won't say who, that there's someone who has a health problem and there's always rumors about whether someone's living in New Haven. Yep. Is that a legitimate reason not to hold a meeting in person? No, that's not enough reason because those uh, individuals, I mean, I would argue if someone's not living in New Haven, they shouldn't be on the board. Um, but I think if there is somebody with a health concern, they could be part of the hybrid model and they could they could participate um, from fr- remotely. But the by and large, the people who are who are on the board of ed are central office folks and the community should be sharing space. And two weeks ago, um, President Rivera did indicate that they were moving in that direction. I, I didn't watch the whole meeting last night. I was sort of in and out. So I don't know if there has been updates, but uh, there, there were some concerns two weeks ago about whether we have the tech for it. I'm sorry, we have we, we have the board tech for it. We've been doing this for, I think, 10 years. And if we don't have the tech for it, then let's get the tech for it as soon as possible because it is time. It is time. And, and Leslie, what was the third bill you had tomorrow? So there's a hearing the Education Committee on class size, on high-stakes testing. What's the third bill? Um, the third one is related uh, to the uh, process for charter schools becoming schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, will kind of, uh, you know, I'm going to have to follow up with you with some of the more specifics. But ultimately, this bill, I think, is going to create a a faster process and potentially more funding for charters to become schools um, in the state of Connecticut. How do you feel about that? Uh, I'm very concerned. I'm also more concerned about another funding bill, um, HB 503. Um, First, I want to say that that funding bill is awesome because it prioritizes fully funding public education throughout the state. Huge win for uh, public schools throughout Connecticut. Um, However, there's a piece of it that's not getting a lot of attention. Uh, A piece of it will put charter schools on a separate funding elevator. Um, so in times of inflation or recession, um, they will get increased funding where funding for our public schools could potentially flatline based off that inflation, uh, times of inflation or recession. So that funding elevator for charters is something I think we need to keep our eye on. And here's the thing. 
Um, it's 2023. There are charter schools in the state of Connecticut, charter schools in New Haven. Um, I, you know, they're not going anywhere. And I'm not here saying that they should be shut down. There are families who are happy with them. There are students who are benefiting from their services. I think if we're at this point where charter schools are going to be getting increased public funding from the state of Connecticut, then we should start having more conversations and have more policy where charter schools are going to be held accountable and they're uh, they're going to kind of live by the transparency rules that public schools live by. You know, Wilbercross serves students who arrive whenever and from wherever throughout the entire school year. I mean, so many of our schools do, but Wilbercross is a classic example. There are students arriving from Central America two weeks ago, and another 11 students joined the ranks of, of Wilbercross High and had to, a schedule had to be made for them. There are charter schools in this city that they will not accept new students until the start of the next school year. And, and it's just, it becomes harder and harder to really do a fair comparison of these two models when some are able to create rules that really, you know, allow them to create, have that stability and, and have that um, sense of community. Um, whereas um, the rules that we're playing by are, of course, we are open to all. We are true public schools. Um, so I think that has to be continue to be a part of the conversation. And I'm hopeful that some legislators are going to hear us when we say, okay, if the public funding is going to go to charters, then let's sit down and really talk about where that money is going who charter schools are serving, and how we can make sure that we are living by the same rules, the same accountability and transparency um, policies and processes. Good luck. Okay, so, yeah, uh, no, good are, luck. It's true. There are, I, I, I'm there, an eternal optimist, Paul. You know are, this. There are charters, that, and there are charters. It's common ground, common environmental, yep. very community-connected. There's Booker T, which is connected to a you know a, a historic African-American church. Yes. And then you have like these kind of corporate-style... Right, white people, right? Capital black prep, achievement first. I mean, capital prep's success. run by an African American man, but but achievement yeah. first, capital prep. You know. Yeah. So, um, there are two proposals. Are they still alive? One is to have a boys' school with Boise Kimber. I Remember believe they, I don't know a lot that about got that killed one. By New Haven, but now he's kind of got it in on the agenda for approval from the state board. Okay. Ed, okay. Because um, I've sort of been reading about it on the periphery there. a little bit. Yeah, and then there's the one for which most of the Jewish community I know of was against to have a Jewish uh, a Hebrew language that wasn't. Jewish necessarily. What's happening with that one? That one did not make it. Uh, It did not meet the standards, I think, set out by the state. So this year it is no longer um, uh, a possibility. That's what I heard from the organizers, from the the, um, progressive Jewish organizers who were concerned about this possible charter. Right. I mean, my... uh, And I'm grateful to them and their work. I wrote a story just with the two sides in my own synagogue. I... People were so mad at me because they just wanted to, they hated the idea of the school. They thought I should have just clobbered it. I thought, well, you know, let everybody have the talk. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's one of the things you're good at is uh, putting the information out there and letting people work through it. Well, some of the information we put out there, Leslie, yesterday was, um, and this happens from time to time, there were drive-by shootings in East Rock, and it was right around the time kids were going to school. It was early morning, like 8.15. Ten schools went into lockdown. There were three in the immediate area. There was Worth and Cooker, both levels of that, and Wilbur Cross. But then a whole bunch of others that were put in lockdown. We got a lot of concern, and because it was in a more white neighborhood, more people were aware of it and complaining to officials, because I know this happens in other parts of town, too. There were a lot of concerns raised about how you decide when to go lockdown, how kids feel it's the second time Hooker School in five weeks had it, third time Wilbur Cross is out of lockdown this year. What, what did you take away and what did you hear yesterday? And they did arrest someone, by the way. I don't know whether it's majesty. Like, within hours, they found people, that, young people that had the guns in the car. What do you think about this? It's so complicated. I mean, first and foremost... Students, staff, educators, everyone who steps into a school, family members, they deserve to feel safe in school. 
Um, the, the issue is how people feel safe and, and what information they need and what policies they need uh, varies, right? So, so what feeling safe it means to people in school is different from person to person. So, so that complicates things. But first and foremost, we have to prioritize safety. So I'm not surprised or that upset that a lockdown is called if there is open gunfire you know, sh- from cars um, as kids are arriving to school. And because they were still driving along a pathway, that's why out of They didn't caution. know where they were going, right? Some people said it was overdone. Okay, keep them inside. But these were kids locked in a bathroom at, at East Rock Magnet. I don't know. Well, I think they shifted to the modified lockdown, Afterwards. which means no one comes and goes and business yeah. as usual inside right, the so school. The, I think the first 20 minutes or so or okay. whatever was, was the full. Because we originally said it was all partial because that's what schools told us. We got calls from one parents that they had my kid locked in the bathroom for 20 minutes. So they said, okay, we, we only got that information at that time. It was first full. So you're not concerned about that because they're trying to keep people safe. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we, we, I mean, I would be complaining if, if there was gunfire in the neighborhood and they didn't lock down a school. I would be hearing from members and community members about that too. So I think, I mean, it's, t- it's, it's, a, it's a lousy comparison because gun violence is much more serious than snow days. But you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, right? If you, if you don't call a snow day, you're screwed. If you call a snow day, you're screwed because someone's going to have an schools? opinion. Some people say, why the immediate area? And, and I mean, there, were, there was a question about why so many schools. Yeah, and their answer was that they were, the call was coming in, that they were shooting each other and still driving into other neighborhoods. And again, we, if there's an abundance of caution, I think that's okay. I think the after, what we do after the lockdown should be discussed more. So what are we doing after the lockdown to check in with members of our community, make sure they understand why a lockdown was called, make sure that they are okay, make sure that no one's trauma has been triggered. I mean, we have been through so much as a city with gun violence. I mean, it's a small city, so we feel the impacts much more than, than say, a New York or a Chicago. I mean, maybe not much more, but you get, just it's a small city, so it just absorbs things more quickly, right? Um, as a nation, uh, teachers and students... It, we just kind of have come to accept that when is it going to happen to us? Uh, we really, uh, to, to walk into a school every day, maybe not the kiddos, but, but the teachers, we, have, uh, we love our jobs and we love our students, but there is a resignation of it, today could be the day. And I'm not trying to be morbid or, or rain on people's parade, but this is a reality that, that folks who work in schools know is, comes with the job just because it's, it's such a, a disaster nationally. Um, so, you know, I think because we're carrying these burdens, we have to make the time to check in with our communities after things like this happen. Um, and, and not to overuse the, the, the restorative justice circles, but, but circle up with your kiddos, circle up with your teachers. If you have a staff meeting and just say, how's everybody doing with that? Do you need anything? Does it happen? In some places? Yes, but not nearly enough. Um, and I think because people want the information and we don't need every last bit of detail of, of, uh, that, that violates people's privacy potentially. But we, when people don't have information, their stress goes up. When people can see things clearly and have access to information, their stress goes down. So let's give people some information so they understand why it was called. They understand we're safe now and we move forward. I mean, I'll, I'll share, um, cause let's be real here that, this is something that students across the city are used to. Um, and we know that it got a lot of attention because it happened at East Rock. And I'm, it's terrible that it happened in East Rock. But, right, it, happens but it happens all happens over our city Hall, all the time. The hill, um, yeah. you know, my daughter goes to Hill Central. I was on pickup, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago. Um, and there was gunshots at pickup. And I literally heard it, thought to myself, that was gunshots. And, and we, were, we were just about to leave. And I like hand in my hand, right? And then I see the principal. And the principal says, uh, okay, 
call lockdown, call lockdown. And we all just go back into the school and sit in the library. Um, and there are some students who are fine. There are some students who are crying. Um, and, you know, this isn't a, uh, so this, this isn't a first. A few weeks ago. This, this happened a few months ago. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it kind of, it's, it's not the norm because it's not the norm. I don't want to say that, but we are used to it. We are used to gunfire in our neighborhoods and we know what to do. Um, but that wasn't in the news. That was just another, another day at Hill Central. Um, and I, I will say the leadership team there did an extraordinary job of taking care of students, family members, teachers, because all of us now were sitting in the library um, and just making sure that we were okay during that time of, of transition. I mean, because that's particularly challenging. And same for East Rock um, neighborhood yesterday. People are arriving to school. You, know, you don't know who's there, who's not there. Same thing for us at Hill Central. We were leaving school. We don't know who was there, who's not there. Um, you know, and this, this gets at that we are not okay um, community-wise that people who do have guns and who are making choices to, to engage in this are doing it at three o'clock and at eight o'clock. Like, come on, come on guys. Like I, 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 I'm not naive. I know that stuff goes on in the city. Um, but at some point when are, are, are folks going to make a choice? Like, you know, keep it after hours, at least like leave people alone. Let children go to school because when people say neighborhoods are dangerous, but at the end of the day, Young children live in those neighborhoods, and young children are not dangerous. And, uh, you know, children are not dangerous. Children um, deserve safe communities. And I just, I feel like it's, it's really a, a time of reckoning for us to, to call upon the folks who are engaging in this and really let them know the impact that they're having on most likely friends and family of theirs, right? Um, when we think about how far reaching it is throughout our city, it's, it's I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the person for this. I, uh, you know, I, I, I see the impact and um, I, I, there are people much smarter and much more nuanced and much more um, able to, to negotiate the tension here um, that are doing the work. Um, but, it, but it's got to continue. It's got to continue because it's, it's really reaching the tipping point where um, you worry about where we're going to go from here. Um, and I don't want to see people leave the city as a result of it. The people who have the means um, and, and people who, who are committed to stay in the city deserve at least some peace of mind that pick up and drop off and school day is sacred. Come on, you know? We're talking about that on Dateline New Haven, WNHH New Haven's home for community radio with Leslie Blateau, president of the New Haven Federated You Say we're not okay. There have been all these stresses in the schools, not New Haven, everywhere. Yeah. And especially starting the pandemic, but bringing to light what was already festering a huge national mental health crisis for teens and younger kids and that's spilling over to what the pressures teachers are facing so first i wanted to ask you about fights in school it seems like there's just a lot of them and and not always guns not usually guns but there's, no. there's violence and to you know we we never you talked about like how we talked about at first we weren't going to write about the east rock thing yesterday because it's just because it happened east rock as opposed to other neighbors but then there were so many people calling and it was 10 schools and it was 20 shots so like it did seem unusual but you're right that there's this sort of balance between What's become normal? Do we accept as normal or do we want to freak out people? So like, should we have written about, um, there was a fight at HSC and we had the video when the kids took the video and they, that kind of elevates the people in it and the principal got attacked. And, and then they said, don't write about it because that's not the only thing that happens in the course of a day. It matters. But if it's happening a lot, that sort of makes it almost like dog bites man. But shouldn't we be caring that dog is biting man? What do you, what do you think about Leslie? If you were in my shoes, how would you look at how to cover the stuff and how, and more broadly as a community, how should we think about this violence taking place in the schools right now? 
Yeah, I think first I just want to respond where to say that that you and and the team at the Independent is doing such good work highlighting the the things that that many people would not consider news stories um, of you know a day in the life. Well, we of care a lot a about teacher. what happens in the school, or and that is huge. And because, we always lead with that over yeah, any of the other. Yeah, and that that is needed, um, and that is welcome. Uh, I think to all of us, uh, it, it's always welcome to see just the regular thing that happened over at Edgewood or, or over at Obama school. And it's like, Oh yeah. Like the regular is not even regular. The regular is extraordinary. Um, but then the question is, you know, do we, do we highlight when things are, are, are really going wrong or when and, do we and how? Yeah. Because we yeah. do care, but sometimes there's this narrative that gets taken that really isn't accurate that that's all that happens. And we know that that's not all that happens. Yeah. I mean, maybe we got to get kids to report on it. Um, and, and, and get it from their perspective. I mean, high school students have the insight, the perspective, the skills, the, the communication ability to, to maybe pull out from this, Good what idea. weren't, what we are missing possibly. And, and then it's not adults sort and of it was <gasps> a high school student who gave me that video. Okay. But, but I would want them to write about it. Right. Or or do a podcast about it um, because they, you know, with with a caring adult alongside that, of them. I love that idea. And what about as a community? What, what's going on with this violence in schools? How bad is it? I think routines were disrupted during the pandemic, which is the understatement of the century. Um, and rebuilding routines is far more difficult than most people realize. And we are still, even though we're, you know, almost three years, um, we are still rebuilding routines. Um, I mean, I think about it just as a parent. Um, when I look at pictures from March 2020, Francine looked so little. And it's like, oh, my God, she's been in the pandemic since she was tiny, since she was four and a half. No, um, and that's years. just her. But, but for all of our children, this has been a chunk of their life now um, where routines and norms have been upended um, and loss has been exacerbated on multiple levels. Um, so we got to get real about how we're going to rebuild routines and real rebuilding routines is not just doing what we used to do. Rebuilding routines is recognizing things are broken. Things are lost. We, we have, we have, we have suffered and let's come together collectively and think about how do we want to rebuild and I think there's still an opportunity for that. And I think in, in classrooms and in schools across the city, that is happening. Um, but I think we have to be more intentional with it because our kids are letting us know that, they're, that they don't feel okay and that their needs are not being met. And it is accurate to say there's a lot more violence taking place in the schools than there was. It's a good question. I'm trying to get data on it. Uh, based on what I'm hearing, I would agree with you. Um, but as, as we always hear, this is a data driven district. And I think it would be great to have some real numbers to Where, compare. Is it always reported. Is there real data? I'm just thinking we hear about it so much more. Partly there are more cell phones now. So part of this, the TikTok challenges. Right, and, right. And we, so and we see the evidence of it more. Right, with the fire stuff, that's a TikTok challenge thing, you know, right in the bathroom. But, right. but some of the stuff that like, I guess that always, there were always times when someone like, who used to go to a school or as two groups of kids from different schools will come after hours or when things are letting out and I guess maybe start a fight. I mean, but there's always going to be conflict. I yeah. mean, we're, we're not, we're, we're not so unrealistic to think there's not going to be conflict, but I think when we have increased disengagement that a, a lot, when we have increased disengagement, which we have, and we have increased trauma and loss, which we have, 
those two things together are a bit of a perfect storm for creating and exacerbating the 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 complications of the conflict. Throw the internet into that too, and it's it's particularly messy. And then I the think that's where we are. Debate comes about SRO, school resource officers, cops assigned to schools. It's been an interesting debate because when they've polled everyone, they want them, but the voices. Who's they? When the board of ed did like a survey, oh, I see. of like teachers, parents, like they, they, the the kids, they say they want them. But then the people who speak up who are motivated clearly are more critical. They're saying this makes us feel like there's something dangerous about our school. It criminalizes kids into the pipeline. Then other people say, well, the the the, t- the officers become someone they can trust and actually keep the lid on things and stop things from getting worse. What's your take on it? I think that first we have to agree on some common language. So SRO, school resource officer. I think from my perspective is a uniformed armed police in a school, right? And I think in New Haven, only Cross Hill House and Career, I think, are schools with SROs, with with uniformed armed New Haven police in their schools. Mm-hmm. Um, there is compelling data to show that the presence of armed police in our schools does disproportionately impact black and brown kids. That data is there and that is, it's real. And we have to acknowledge that data and if we're feeling like we have to have police in our schools then we have to mediate the negative impacts of how that's impacting our black and brown kids we must do that but but i also want to shift because most of our schools don't have armed police in them okay most of our schools well some of our schools have a school security guard who is unarmed uh city employee you know city board of ed employee um who in an ideal world should be part of that school community, know the name of every kid, know the name of every teacher, and be able to help prevent violence um, before it even starts. So that's the ideal world that we're not there because we're down security guards. It's an issue in the city. Um, we don't have enough just regular, not cops, but regular school security Truman guards in our school. There was an incident, there wasn't a security guard. There. Right. I mean, I know, um, you know, a lot of schools share them a lot of, and it sort of like feels a little bit like whack-a-mole, like, oh, there's a fight over at this school, send three over. But we got to get into the proactive, not to the reactive mode here. And I, I know that there are real, you know, staffing shortages and, and this, I'm not casting blame, but I think we got to get to a point where our goal is um, a, an embedded community member security guard in a school who works on the relationship building and the violence prevention so that there's we don't get to the need of of needing to suspend kids or or needing uh you know have teachers getting injured because they're getting stuck in the middle of a fight um but really the security guard can be the the eyes and ears of the institution in a in a in a a way that's focused on the the needs of the children, the needs of the school community and really honors child development and also has an anti-racist per- perspective like they could get trained um, in anti-racist, anti-bias. Well, yeah, because um, I noticed work. that was security. My, when my kid, this is in the aughts, so this is a while back when they went to cross. They just said, you know, the black and brown kids got searched and they didn't. Right. There weren't that many white kids in school, but the white kids never got searched. My daughter, I was really upset. She once brought a cake in and she had a knife. They didn't wander. And other kids with smaller knives or things were getting caught and, and things. And know. that's not blaming the individuals. That's just acknowledging the systemic racism that we're, we live we're in. in America. So let's... Let's acknowledge it and and let's really work to to rebuild our communities. I mean, ultimately, what's going to reduce um, the the behavior incidents and the the violence that we're seeing in our schools is increasing staffing and and allowing people to stay in one building so they have those relationships. Kids need to have the more re- the more relationships students have with caring adults, the better they are. 
Um, so let's flood our schools with resources. That's a quote from David Weinrab. He's been a champ on the state testimonies. He's been hitting the public hearings left and right. And he keeps saying, let's flood our schools with resources. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what does resources mean? Resources is is a certified teacher and paraprofessionals in the classrooms that, that require them. Um, special ed, uh, staffing, robust and to meet the needs of our students with IEPs. Um, restorative practices counselors so they can do the mediations with students. We often know when students are going to fight. Students will let us know, um, either themselves or their friends, that so-and-so and so-and-so are not okay. And, and they'll send the smoke signals of, of what might be happening 20 minutes from now when lunch happens. Um, and, but oftentimes, because you know we've got three vacancies and we've got half a school nurse and we've got half a security guard, there just isn't the capacity to grab those two or three individuals and say, come on, sit down. I'm not going to let you fight. Let's work this out right now. Um, and if we had the restorative practices folks, you know, we have Cameo and a team of three, just not enough people. If we had somebody dedicating each building who, again, was working with the school security guard, working with, um, you know, the dropout prevention person, working with the assistant principal, we would be able to really call those kids in and say, let's work this out because I don't want you going on suspension. I don't want you getting arrested. I don't want you missing, you know, the SATs next week um, because for good or for ill, we know you need them to get into UConn. So let's figure this out now. And again, this is about the proactive versus the reactive. Um, and I think we're going to be able to get there, but it's going to take pushes on multiple levels, on the local level, state level. And I think it's, it's got to be a federal push too. You know, you know, at some point, the federal government can and should do a GI bill for teachers um, that if someone is coming in, uh, pardon me, if someone is, is graduating high school and entering college or graduating college and entering a, a master's program, they should not take on a penny of debt to become a public school teacher. When can, when can and will the federal government prioritize this? Because why would someone with prospects take on that debt to potentially become a certified educator in the state of Connecticut when they could go through the same amount of training, spend the same amount of money and, and take a job that they would make, you know, 75% more or possibly double? Um, so let's let's remove the obstacles and really create pathways so that we're looking not just to next year and the year after, but we're looking 5, 10, 15 years out. And, and that's where I think I'm very proud of our work as a union because people who are retiring now, they are retiring with pension, with health care benefits, and with things that they have because of the hard work of unions that so come before us. how would the GI us. Bill work exactly? Um, good question. I mean... We know that the United States of America spends an extraordinary amount of discretionary funding on military. And we could take a small part of that and provide grants to people who commit to becoming, uh, to majoring in education or majoring in a content area and getting their teacher certificate um, and then moving on to work in schools uh, for X amount of years. Um, I know that would then take an investment in the teacher retention piece to actually hold them because we, we don't want TFA on, you know, from the U.S. government, America, yeah. right? We, we want people to, to commit to teaching. But also that we, we have to think, is it fair to be asking teachers to do 37 and a half years to qualify for um, uh, the, the fullest pension that they can get? Wow. That's what we're asking our teachers. If you, you know, if I've you're going to enjoy that benefit. are burnt and they really need to be going at 30 and they feel they can't. But this is a state decision, and I think you know, yeah. and the, the state's a catch twenty two for them because if they lower it, then we're still we're going to be short teachers. Um, but at some point, we got to be real about what we're asking of our educators right now. That the job has changed from thirty years ago, um, 
it's it's there are different expectations there are different demands on our body and on and our our mind and i think thir- i'm not sure 37 and a half years is as realistic as it was i don't know if it was ever realistic but it's certainly not as realistic as it was uh 30 years ago all right talking to leslie Bateau, president of new haven federal teacher public school parent how many years were your teacher in the schools 16 and that was before you became president yep yep 2007 uh to 2022 all right. So you talked about uh, keeping teachers when teachers can go. What's the latest with the problem we've had with losing teachers? All Teachers are leaving the profession nationally. It's a problem. I had the impression, tell me if I'm wrong, it was a bigger problem in New Haven because suburbs were able to poach teachers who were willing to remain. Like we all know teachers who just had to get out of the job, especially after the pandemic and right. all this stuff going on. But there are other teachers who stayed in the profession but went to the suburbs. Yes. Maybe because they got paid more. I think a combination, um, you know, it was it was clear that they were going to make 15000 more uh, by transferring. Um, but it wasn't just the pay. It was their, and this goes to the class size bill that we're going to be testifying on uh, tomorrow. Their class sizes for first grade are 20 kids. Um, what are ours? Uh, ours are, the, our class cap for K-1 <clears throat> um, is 26. And then either second or third grade and up is 27. Um, so, for example, Francine started her class with 20 kids in the class at the beginning of the year. And now it's 26. Um, and her teacher is doing extraordinary work with with uh, a large group of students. But if you're in a suburb, you're going to start with 20 and you're going to end with 20. Um, because, again, the, the, those those cities aren't the sanctuary city that, that New Haven is. We're, they're not open and welcoming any. I mean, they would be but in what theory. Plus it is for us, too. Like we've done some stories of Clemente and Truman. And it does seem like these are some awesome kids. And in some cases, parents getting involved or bringing a lot of focus, energy and smarts. To, to our school. Oh, no, I'm glad that people are coming are. to our yeah. schools, right? It's certainly, I'm not blaming them, but we need more resources. Yeah. Um, and I if there was a, a, a potentially a state-imposed class size cap, um, then it would be all the more reason for New Haven to advocate and say, okay, you're, that cap we're going to phase in, uh, you know, in the, over the next five years. Well, let's make sure we have the resources because that's going to mean we're going to need another teacher at this so school. We got, we're going to need got, another teacher at that school. You got a 15% increase over how many years for teachers? For our salary, 15% over three years average. But it, wasn't there also an issue of how there were problems when people got to get step increases so it's actually not as big as increases it looks or do I have that so wrong? So it depends on where you are. So what we did with the next contract is we guaranteed step movement for everybody. Um, so everybody moves up a step each year of the contract. And we took the salary schedule from the previous contract and we added money to it. So you're not just moving up a step on the old contract. You're moving up a step and all of the steps have more money than ever before. And obviously that was a big deal. Is it a big enough deal? Is it going to keep teachers here? I think it is going to keep teachers. I've had some uh, one-on-one conversations with folks where it it is a, a, a winner for them and they're, they are able to see themselves staying. Um, I Again, though, it's not just about the pay. It's about the working conditions too. So we, I think teachers will be more likely to stay if we are able to retain and recruit more so that the, the vacancies are filled. Because this is where people begin to lose hope is when it's just, oh my God, that they're, they're facing their students and, and saying, knowing that, that it's third period and I'm the first teacher you had today. Um, that gets uh, demoralizing in a very real way. Um, and not to mention the, the social, emotional, mental health supports that we know our students need. Um, but I think, you know, I, I want to remain hopeful that the raises are going to help that meet that need. And then, you know, we're working collaboratively with the district on the staffing committee um, to make recommendations to finance and ops and ultimately the full board um, that, you know, if we're going to really staff our schools in a robust 
way, in a, in a, in a visionary way, this is what we want. And I'm excited about the prospects of that. You know, I know ultimately that requires funding, um, but I think if we're not funding our schools, what are we prioritizing here? And this is, this is something that's, that's frustrating to, to see, you know, Governor Lamont's decision to flat fund public ed, to, to um, take away money from higher, public higher ed, um, to not fully fund child care. Um, you know, there are 12 billionaires in the state of Connecticut who collectively have $75 billion among them. They've, their wealth has increased by $15 billion since the start of the pandemic, and they pay a 5% tax rate. Um, you know, middle-class folks, you know, middle-class folks, 15%, working-class folks, 25%. We have an upside-down tax structure in the state. It needs to be turned around. You know, the billionaires aren't going to go anywhere. There's this migration myth. There's a UConn professor who's doing research to show it doesn't make them go away. They're quite content to stay here. It's time that the ultra-wealthy pay what they owe so that we can fund social services in this state because the divide between the ultra rich and everybody else is really becoming more and more stark and more and more alarming. And I would think that when we have things like this happening yesterday, uh, you know, in the corner East Rock, um, on a corner in the East Rock neighborhood um, where, where our community is in crisis, I would think more and more of us could come together and really galvanize on this issue of there is funding. I mean, you say, where, where would the money come from for the, for the National GI Bill for teachers? You know, similarly, there is funding in the state of Connecticut for us to push robust social services, education, health care, um, housing. These, these are possible, and it would not hurt those 12 billionaires. It just wouldn't. I refuse to accept that they're somehow going to be hurt by paying a higher tax rate. Leslie Bateau, President of New Haven Federation of Teachers on Dateline New Haven. So the union... Strange bedfellows and the Republican Party are pushing for an elected, fully elected board of education. Well, let me clarify: we're we're in the mid uh, mid range. Uh, what we what we landed on. Um, the union officially proposed four elected, three and, appointed, and the mayor is a non voting member. And why do we want more elected members? I think this goes back to the engagement piece. Um, when people see that they have a chance to have a seat at the table, um, I think. That there is going to be more engagement, there is going to be more involvement. Right now, as you know, because you've reported on it, the mayor is the only member of the Board of Ed with a student in New Haven Public Schools. And, you know, that's alarming because when it, when it came time to the um, public meetings that were happening for the superintendent search, um, I didn't know about it as a parent unt- until the Monday of that week of the meetings. So we need to have people who are parents and family members in the school system to, to really be the eyes and ears. But we and, haven't had anyone run for the Board of Ed who has a kid in the schools. No, but I, I think we could do better on that. Um, for one, that's why we want to move it up to four. People thinking that they have to essentially run a citywide race really could, could kind of damper people's so you're optimism. So divide it into four and not make them citywide districts? Divide yeah, yeah. well, right now it's split in half, right? So and split that's, into four. So if we split it into four, people could be more connected to their constituents. I think, I mean, we have democracy schools in this city um, to, to help people understand how the city government works. Let's build a pipeline of potentially engaged parents um, to get a sense of who might want to run and, and give them some tools and training to, to step into the role. Could the I mean, right now it's teachers become an engine to convince parents to run? Yeah, I, I think teachers could absolutely become an engine to, to build the relationships with folks who could potentially run. Like why haven't, why hasn't the New Haven Union supported anybody for that office? Well, uh, like you said, when we were um, having our pre-interview uh, discussions, 14 months, um, it's on the to-do list. 
Um, I think it's, you know, we're, we're kind of putting our opinion out there um, in the name of democratically run schools um, by, by trying to, um, you know, have this proposal be heard by the Charter Revision Committee and, and mm. pr- heard by the Board of Alders. I think if and when it gets passed, we would absolutely hit the ground running um, and do some organizing work with, uh, with our community to see who potentially could run. I, I mean, know there are people out there who would be interested and who would be effective. And I, I wait all time to ask a big question. We're searching for a new superintendent. So, um, first of all, what are your thoughts on the person who appears to be going to be Madeline Negron? It seems like the former was an assistant uh, superintendent here. She's now in Hartford. She left because of the whole Burks disaster. It sounds like they want to bring her back. Am I missing something? Is she okay? I, I've, I've heard that. I've heard a lot of rumors, which I, I won't speak to directly. Um, I don't know Dr. Negron well. I know of her uh, from her time here. I know. I think she was principal at Career for some time. Um, so, you know, if she is, well, one, if she, if, if, as we know, if it's a done deal and she does get the job, I, um, I'm going to feel for her because she's going to come in with the baggage, uh, uh, that, that it wasn't a, a transparent or fair process, um, which stinks because the goal of this board of ed is that this is going to be a transparent and fair process. Um, so she's going to come in with that obstacle right in front of her because people are going to think it was rigged. And whether it was or not, um, you know, uh, that, you that's for us her? to observe. Are Pardon you, me? What do you hear about her? How do you, what's your sense of her? Um, I, I, not that much, to be honest. Um, and, and that's not a, that's not a diss. That's, you know, I know she's assistant superintendent in Hartford. Um, I work closely with our, our union um, brothers and sisters up in Hartford. Um, I know they have some struggles with, um, with the leadership team up in Hartford. Um, so, you know, I, I, I know that New Haven is a union town. New Haven is a town where unions are, have a seat at the table and, and collaborate with management in a way that might be different than other places. So I, I'm just going to assume that whoever does get that job is going to know that. And we're going to be able to work collaboratively and really try to center the needs of, of students, teachers, and community. Um, and as one we continue issue is because most, as you know, most of the things we hear are people who are Latino or Latina. Now, a plurality of students now is, are Latino. Uh, Hispanic in, in New Haven schools and soon it's going to be an outright majority. Is it time to have an Hispanic superintendent? I think it's time to have a superintendent um, who wants to commit to New Haven, who's going to be responsive. I mean, it, it would be great if we had a Latino, Latino superintendent. It's also great if we don't and that person is right for the job because I know they would have somebody on their executive team um, who is Latino, Latino as well. I mean, I think... Uh, it's a team of people, and I don't think the the top person has to check a specific box right. on language or ethnicity um, to to fulfill the job. I think um, it would be a milestone, and it would be hi- historic, and it would be awesome, and it would signal to our Spanish speaking um, Latino community and and students and families um, that they are seen, heard, and can be communicated with. Um, but that can also happen if the superintendent is um is not uh spanish-speaking latino um latinx so you know I, I it's more complicated than just that uh that's one piece to the puzzle and um you know i, I yeah i'll leave it there all right leslie blateau you've been now 14 months you came as part of a change team very democratic process all these people you organized to be involved in union election and it ended up I thought in a really good place where the people, the old guard left, were respecting what you're bringing in, hoping you're going to do well through your new ideas and blood. 14 months later, is there anything that has surprised you? Have you evolved in your thinking on anything? What, how does it look now compared to when you took the job? Oh, well, it looks a lot, um, 
I'm able to think beyond the day to day, which is That's a nice. gift. Um, you know, when we started, it was you know 500 staff out in the first week of January because Omicron was was hitting hard. Um, so that feels like a blur. Um, but I think what surprises me, I guess. Um, well, let me start first with uh, with how much I love the day to day work. I love being able to connect with members, hear members' concerns, uh, really try to support people to to work through their problems, solve their problems, and make sure that they know their contract and um, and feel like they are part of the union. I mean, that's what we ran on. We didn't want people to think, oh, the union's going to fix it for me. No, we are all the union. And I, I think that showed um, in our in our process for preparing for contract negotiations. We had you know open door. We welcomed people into working groups. I think it showed when we um, were concerned that the board might not be willing to negotiate with us, and we you know shared information with our members and really energized them to to be part of that process. Um, so I think that piece has been a beautiful thing to to be working alongside our union members um, to to really demand the things that we know are, are going to benefit our schools and our students. Um, the thing that I guess is kind of delighting me and surprising me is is how much of this work is that we are in coalition with folks around the state and how much AFT um, National has been a champion for us, um, supporting us to do this work. So one of the reasons why we're able to um, uh, organize our coalition to testify at the state level is because we got a grant from AFT to hire an organizer, an education justice organizer. Um, so, you know, this person is kicking butt, um, building relationships with teachers, parents, community members. And we're, we're seeing organizing that really hasn't happened in a long time of rank and file members, um, you know, submitting written testimony, logging onto Zoom, um, you know, after a long work day, they're home at four o'clock and they're testifying in support of fully funded schools. They're testifying in support of Husky for Immigrants. They're testifying in support of rent caps. They're doing the things that we know are going to benefit our students and their families and then ultimately improve uh, working conditions and learning conditions as well. So it's been really exciting to be able to be part of that statewide coalition work and with the support of our national union um, because our national union sees it i mean how does chicago la and boston how are they able to push things in in the way that they are because they have that community coalition and it's something that i know there are community members in new haven who care deeply about our schools but i'm really hoping you know that that people will see the union as as and and our union members as on their side when it comes to making sure that we have the resources that our schools deserve All right, and that, that's ongoing work Leslie Blatteau, the work is ongoing. Thank you for making time to come on Dateline New Haven. Hope you'll be coming back to fill us in again. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Harry Droz on the snow day, keeping the shows going on WNHH. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. <laughs>